Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Wednesday, the 5th of April. Q2 is upon us and surely Easter will be as well. The long weekend means we brought everything forward this week. Uh, the latest issue of the IC will be on sale on Thursday as you listen to this, hopefully. And as I say, we are recording the show on Wednesday. Joining me to chew the fat this week are Mark Robinson. Hi, Mark. Hi, Dan. A restored to health, Julian Hoffman. Hi, yeah, Julian. thank you, Dan. Yes. Oh, glad to be back. And Gemma Slingo. Hi, Gemma. Hi, Dan. Now, despite the short week, we've had a lot of companies news over the past three days or two and a half days, not least some notable M&A activity in the commodity financials and real estate sectors, encompassing Glencore, Rathbones and Industrials REITs. We'll be talking about those shortly, along with a brief look at full year figures from another soon to be acquired business, funeral provider Dignity. But we are going to start with food packaging business Hilton Food Group, which reported its own annual results this morning. Uh, this is a company, Mark, like so many, that's been facing sizable inflationary pressures over the past year. Unlike so many, it's not been quite as adept at navigating those. Is that fair to say? Uh, yes, up to this point, yeah. But I think that, in a sense, that um, partially reflects the integration process because it acquired three businesses throughout the year and entered into a joint venture too. It's interesting because I, I did I did look at, at benchmark holdings as well to try and get some uh, a lead on what's happening in, in the world of seafood because uh, one of Hilton's acquisitions through the year was uh, a Netherlands-based uh, 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 fish company called uh, Foffen. They make uh, specialist uh, smoked salmon uh, products. Um, and the, the trouble with it is, when I just looked at some of the companies, Hilton's uh, unique key performance indicators, um, they suggest that that process is still going to be ongoing. Because uh, if you look at the, the adjusted operating margin, that's and it's expressed in, in pence per kilogram, strangely enough, uh, that's actually fallen appreciably over the last year, uh, while employee and labor agency costs have, have increased also and and they put this down to the, the the term they use is greater labor complexity in the recently acquired businesses in, including Foppen. so i i think it might be a little bit premature to make a judgment on on their ongoing profitability as well because it's going to take a while before to bed these new businesses in and it's also significant to the the joint venture it's an australian joint venture they've entered into and it's with a, a company that specializes in automation and automation linked to food supply chain so this indicates that uh, hilton is making a push for efficiency um, in, in that respect it's, it's certainly not unique I did have a look at a few other figures as well. It's at the moment it's trading pretty much in line uh, with others in the sector, such as um, Cranswick, at uh, 13 times forecast earnings, and there's an implied forward yield of uh, just over four percent as well. So it's not um, terribly expensive, but I think what's more significant than anything else is that when you look at uh, the consensus figure, they're pointing to um, a gradual increase in cash flow yield and also return on equity which suggests that most analysts think that those 
those acquired assets will eventually integrate and start um, you know, pushing growth forward for the business. As you say, it is early days. There's certainly not uh, an indication of any you know, goodwill being written off or anything like that yet, despite the fact is that the seafood side of the business that is uh, struggling a little bit or has been over the last year, specifically with passing on costs as quickly as, uh, as they hoped. I do know some analysts did say, I think before or at the time of the deal, that you know, Hilton's uh, tradition is very much into the meatpacking side of the business. That is still the yeah. majority of its business. But some analysts were a bit concerned that whereas they have the ability to you know, pass on cost and even cost plus uh, increases in that side of the business, the salmon side might prove a bit more difficult. That does seem to be in the case so far. But as you say, if they can get these kind of automation improvements working in train alongside the new arm, then that's potentially good news for the future in the, the medium to longer term. I mean, in, investors will be put off by companies like this, or some investors will put off companies like that, given the fact they're traditionally lower margin businesses, although they do offer a degree of clarity on, on forward revenues as well, which you, you don't get in certain other sectors. The, the point that you made early on is significant as well, given that we've, we've just seen that Saudi Arabia announce that they're going to cut back their production levels. Now, there's a, a direct correlation between food costs and energy costs. And we were only just starting to get over the energy price surge that um, that occurred around about the time of the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now you've got the situation is, is likely to deteriorate again. And we should acknowledge also that food price inflation is, is easily outstripping the general rate too. Uh, and there was a, uh, this doesn't affect the, the fish business quite so much, obviously. But um, the price of uh, nitrate fertilizers is going to start creeping up again now. There's been a significant amount that's been removed from the market because Russia and uh, Ukraine are both uh, large so producers. Investors should take that on board before they look at any food companies going forward. Yeah, uh, the Saudi Arabia uh, production cut you referred to. Obviously, we're talking about oil here and, and that input. I mean, there hasn't been a huge spike in the price, certainly when you, uh, crude oil, certainly when you compare it to this time last year, we're still quite a bit down. So yeah, uh, for commodity, you know, price takers, they have a bit of hope from that, that there hasn't been that much removed. There also hasn't been too much removed from China's reopening, which is sort of contrary to what some people, perhaps myself included, thought at the, the start of the year. But as you say, nitrate fertilizer, it could be an issue. Certainly food price inflation currently seems to be outstripping everything I, I, else by a considerable margin. I, I think the problems, uh, there's, there's a bit of a lag with these problems as well, because mm -hmm. they are... I think they pointed to the the winter planting uh, season as being the significant one. And if um, primary producers, if they look around and, and, and say to themselves, well, you know, our, our margins are wafer thin as it is, uh, what's the point of, you know, buying in excessively priced fertilizers? And so just overall yields are going to fall uh, going into going into next year, perhaps as well. So we'll have to wait on that score, but it's uh, it's it's not a positive development at any rate. Yeah, uh, as you say, those margins are razor thin. Uh, Hilton Food Group, I think, uh, let me just bring up the figure, 1.8% operating margin uh, last year, falling from 2.2% the year before. So, you know, very little uh, wiggle room yeah. there still. But it's, uh, it's a 
it's a volume trade, isn't it? At the mm. end of the day, I think that's probably why they brought in uh, the co-op guy to take over as chief executive, isn't it? There was a, a change of management uh, yeah. announced today alongside the results. That's right. And uh, yeah, they brought in the co-op guy to to run the the business uh, from July. And uh, I mean, I think I read that partly as the the previous um, uh, chief executive Philip Heffer's just retiring, basically, but. You'd always, you could also see that as bringing someone in who has experience of managing quite low margins in a volume business, which is basically what the co-op is as well. Almost like a food producer as well as a food seller as well in uh, in many ways. So they have some like the largest farms in the UK apparently that does the co-op. But uh, yeah, it's a good go. point. We should uh, we should uh, as you have done talk about the the uh, change in management because. Yeah, I don't think that will signal a change in strategy and overhaul, but uh, it's something to keep an eye on, as always, with uh, these uh, executive moves. Uh, one final point, Mark, you, you talked about the valuation, just to return to that briefly. Uh, yeah. One company uh, we, we look at elsewhere in our pages this week is Cranswick. Uh, you know, the relative valuation argument for the for these two businesses is that an easy case to make for one or the other to you? Is it much for muchness? How do you see that? Certainly, as as things stand at the moment, you, you get a better return uh, with Cranswick. But as, as I mentioned, the general feeling amongst analysts is, is that return on equity is going to uh, creep up for Hilton over the next three years going forward, uh, along with the, the cash flow yield. So, I, I mean, that that seems to me to be an indicator that they think those those acquired assets will will help over over the long run. Uh, I, I, you know, um, whether whether you, you would really recommend a business just on the basis of the uh, the the implied dividend yield, well, perhaps it's not a great ask at the 13 times forward earnings, but it's pretty much in line with the sector. Yeah, a, a work in progress for now, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Let's let's talk about another business, Dignity, a completely different business, obviously, a funeral provider, and also a business in a completely different stage of its public life cycle because it, there is a bid uh, on the table, uh, it has been recommended, it does look like that will probably go through, we'll come to that in a moment, but nonetheless, the company continues to report full-year figures, Gemma, you covered these, and notwithstanding that deal, it is still a bit of a troubled time for the company, as these figures suggest. It is. And I mean, Dignity is quite a gloomy company to read and talk about anyway. So please excuse some of the morbid comments I'm about to make. But on a simplistic level, it does look like conditions are pretty good for funeral providers. I mean, it said in its four year results that demand for funeral services was still higher than average coming out of the pandemic. And it does actually track death numbers in its financial highlights. But despite that, the company is still struggling. So revenue is down by 9% in 2022. And worse than that, it reported an operating loss of almost 200 million. So clearly something isn't going well. Um, and it seemed to be that it was partly down to external factors. So for a while now, the management team has been noting um, a trend towards lower price funerals. So one of the lesser known consequences of the cost of living crisis, I suppose. And there's also been a rise in branch direct cremations, which basically paired back ceremonies, um, which are a lot cheaper as well. Um, and on top of that, there's also been problems with staff shortages, which isn't necessarily that surprising given the nature of the industry. 
So all of those factors have basically meant that Dignity has been struggling to grow its market share. And this led in turn sort of this big impairment that came out um, the other day, 196 million, which again fueled that operating loss. So clearly things aren't aren't great at the company. And uh, cash flow as well, you know, all these things having, a, or most of these things having a knock on effect on cash flow and borrowings too, a bit concerning at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting because for a long time, management has been turning to external factors to basically explain why it's in the state it's in. But a lot of the issues seem to relate to cash and debt. So basically, cash has dried up at the company. I think it was £7.7 .7 million pounds its, of cash on its balance sheet at the end of 2022, um, compared to about £56 million the year before. Um, and operations are now just sucking in cash. And this means it's basically got into this vicious cycle with debt because it needs to keep borrowing in order to, I don't know, keep investing and just keeping the business functioning on a day-to-day. -day. The group expects to draw £45 million from its liquidity facility in 2023. Um, but now the big question basically is whether it can actually repay that debt because both SMP and Fitch downgraded its credit rating this year. And there are signs in the report that trouble may be coming buried in the depths of the report it noted material uncertainty with respect to covenant compliance and there are more details of those in the notes itself for listeners who are interested well uh, this does lead on to the offer that's on the table and when we look at the list of issues that we've just iterated there it would seem to make sense to perhaps to accept that offer but at the same time there have been uh, concerns in some quarters that it was a bit of a lowball deal our own bearball columnist uh, is is one of those who has voiced concerns over the past few months. Mark, maybe we bring you in here, though, perhaps. You know, when you look at the, the fundamental health of the business, I mean, it does seem like this deal will likely go through anyway. There hasn't been much mutterings of a, a shareholder rebellion or a push for a higher price. There were a few uh, attempts to make this offer uh, before the company acquiesced, shall we say. Do, do you think at this stage it's something where shareholders should just accept what what's your kind of view of the the business well i'd if i if i was holding shares in the company i would certainly accept at the moment the the rationale behind the approach from the the consortium uh, and that includes phoenix asset management there as well it, it's difficult to know and i i don't know if, if this will just amount to a, a type of a assets asset stripping uh, eventually the point that, that Gemma made earlier on is significant as well. The, the fact that we're, we're seeing a trend towards a cheaper no-frills funerals as well may have something to do with the deal too, unless they, you know, perhaps the consortium are looking at cornering that part of the market itself. You look at the level of debt and basically it was around about twice the market cap of the company as well. So you really haven't got that many options uh, as a shareholder, I don't think. I, I would... I would grab the money, to be honest. <laughs> we, we should say as well, regarding the offer, that Sortium, as you say, involves Phoenix, but also is being fronted by Gary Channon, who until seven months ago was, well, until about 10 months ago now, was the chief executive of Dignity. Uh, so I think that has led to some, the Bearball article was talking about, you know, what, what does he know perhaps that shareholders don't. But, yeah. but as you say, maybe the, the debt issue is the most paramount one. I think the consortium has said, you know, as a private company, they'd have access to a lot more funding or certainly funding that's easier to access so he may simply be thinking 
the time as a listed company, given the debt pile has come to an end, this is a good opportunity for a long-term holder to do something that public markets can't do in this instance. Yeah, so let's hope that sort of uh, from his perspective, that sentimentality isn't playing a, a role in that decision. Indeed. It was interesting. I just, when I was reading the results, um, it just struck me that some industries, I don't know, there's a question of whether some industries do suit big listed companies in a way, because obviously the funerals market is generally very fragmented. Um, and I think one of the issues that Dignity has faced is by being this very big um, conglomerate in a way, it hasn't been able to connect with its customers in the way it may have wanted, because it said it was trying to put more emphasis on um, its regional branches and gain more local knowledge. And it seems, you know, when you're when someone's died, you, you want sort of a face and a human element to the service, which I don't know, it sounds like maybe Dignity has been trying to to generate that sense a little bit more, but might not have always been successful in really. Well, presumably as well, we there, there must be fewer uh, religious themed funerals nowadays as well. And that seems to be a wider trend in society. There, there certainly is that trend though. I mean, I, I, I know well, I was gonna say from personal experience, but that, that wouldn't be right. But uh, some of my friends have been looking at costs involved with funerals um, and uh, the, the emphasis is squarely on, uh, squarely on saving money, you know. Yeah, my, yeah. my wife's my wife's a reverend and she does quite a few of these and uh, basically everyone just sing comes up <laughs> sings abide with me and then goes to lunch uh, so it's not really <laughs> it's, there's no particular dignity involved in it. well yeah as with any business as, as Gemma was saying i suppose from the the company's point of view there's that balance between being a large company diverse in terms of number of outlets if you want to use such a crude word in this context and and having that personal touch which which is pretty crucial in this context obviously so yes it does look like the the time as a publicly listed company has perhaps come to an end that is not the only uh, m a deal though on the table at the moment there have been a lot in the past few weeks and months keeping up the trend of the past 18 months really and this week alone as i touched on at the top of the show we have seen uh, quite a few interesting deals or takeover attempts being made uh, we'll start with uh, the first one of the week i think in chronological order which was the uh, deal for industrials REIT, the warehousing uh, real estate REIT by Blackstone, the uh, US real estate manager. Now, Blackstone has been quite a big acquirer of UK businesses in recent years in, in this, or certainly in the real estate space, and Industrials REIT is its latest target. Julian, I know we've been discussing separately some commercial real estate potential issues coming up in, in the UK and the US, perhaps on the back of the credit crunch, given all the stuff about banks we've been talking about over the past uh, month or so. This deal yes, is quite interesting for a couple of reasons, but it does perhaps show that, you know, the warehouse sector or this specific part of the warehouse sector is still of interest to a lot of buyers, despite the, the bubble having deflated somewhat over the past 12 months. Yes, I mean, Black, Blackstone is the latest proud owner of uh, a load of uh, warehouses on the A30 somewhere. Um, it, it's an interesting deal, as you said, because... Um, the REITs at the moment are going through the process of revaluing all their assets uh, for the first quarter of the year. So it's, it's quite a key point uh, in time for that sector. 
and uh, contrary in essence to a lot of expectations the the growth in in prices for individual assets and REITs has not matched what happened last year, which actually was quite stable in many ways. Uh, and this year, the average prices have fallen generally by about 13% across across the board. So Blackstone's timing, you could say, is entirely commendable. So they're picking up a relatively cheap asset, which given the ongoing demand for warehousing space all over the country for various uh, functions, uh, including things like home shopping and things like that, means that they've actually picked up a reasonable bargain, I think, in this context. Uh, and also because everything in the, U- the UK is is cheap by US standards. I mean, as uh, Alex Newman was pointing out recently, the, the Blackstone is also under pressure in the US because of its real estate concerns post the Silicon Valley Bank. A lot of these companies or investment companies and this stretches right down into the insurance business as well, have um, increased their exposure to commercial real estate quite substantially. I was looking at this morning, it's uh, something like tripled in value since 2005, partly the result of looking for yield uh, at a time when yield was difficult to find. And the, the problem that holding that level of uh, real estate poses is that once interest rates on long dated bonds go down and cash becomes much more attractive, investors have very little incentive to to stick with this type of commercial real estate. So that is a, a problem for Blackstone if it's increasing its exposure at this rate. But it has to be said that the, given the discount on the underlying asset, it might be one that could be priced in, I think you could argue. But um, mm. We'll see how yeah. that works out. Blackstone does attract a lot of attention in, in the last few months because of its real estate fund, which it's continually gating due to, to outflows. I mean, it's entitled to gate it, but I think it's a 4.5 billion fund, the uh, Blackstone Real Estate Income Trust, US focused, you know, not available to UK investors, but, but a kind of a sign of the uh, the pressures or at least the outflows. So it's a 70 billion uh, dollar fund i should say the 4.5 billion were just the latest uh outflows <laughs> just the latest outflows, yeah, yeah so it does show the size of that uh, uh portfolio but there is there is a real problem i mean in the united states has something like 20 trillion of um commercial real estate on various people's books say if they're experiencing that level of outflow then you could only um hazard a guess at what uh, the rest of that uh, sector is looking at so it, it could be quite a significant uh problem um but in the uk context i mean our take would be that they are they are buying something at a really reasonable price uh, that uh, you know has a has a discount built into it am i right in thinking that they're actually a, a, a very large residential landlord in the us as well i seem to remember they came under some criticism at one point because of uh, basically they they were shrinking the pool of um affordable housing in, in certain areas and I think they were also uh, accused of pursuing a, a aggressive evictions and, you know, pushing low and middle income tenants uh, out of the market. They do own, I think they own pretty much every type of property in the US nowadays, which does include apartment blocks, things like that. So they do come into contact, certainly with uh, residential real estate issues and reputational issues, shall we say, as well. Uh, yeah. But just to return to industrials REIT, uh, as you say, Julian, a, you know, potentially a good deal there. The discount on UK assets is clearly attractive to Blackstone. They've they bought some Modwin, a, another logistics REIT, uh, a couple of years ago. The interesting thing, perhaps, on this deal was there was a bit of an uptick for uh, various warehouse REITs on the, the back of this announcement on Monday. But as Mitchell Labiak, our property correspondent, has written before, 
industrial REIT is slightly different from these big box warehouses. It buys some smaller multi-let industrials, hence the ticker MLI. Uh, so the likes of Amazon, which sparked this big sell-off last year when it said it effectively overextended its warehouse space in the UK. Amazon is not a tenant of it, industrials REIT. So it is slightly different, uh, something to watch there if you are looking for for reading. Yeah, it's, it's probably the, the sort of this, this type of thing you'll find on the edge of Bridgewater um, would be the sort of way to describe it. You know, lots of different types of businesses, small businesses and retail outlets as well, I think, um, mm. uh, play a part uh, in that business model. So, uh, I mean, I, you, you can't argue. I mean, I'd say it's an astute thing that Blackstone have done, but uh, I mean, yeah. only time is only gonna, time is only going to tell how that works out. But um, it was definitely yeah. there for the taking, I would say. Well, let's turn to another deal. Uh, Glencore, Mark, maybe I'll bring you in on this in a moment. Just when I, the, the details of this offer, because it's a little bit complicated. This was an offer for uh, Canada's tech, and that's T-E-C-K, not a, a diversification strategy from Glencore. Um, yeah. And this was rejected, but it was an interesting offer for, for what it implies about the, the company, that's Glencore as much as anything else, because the idea was to buy tech combined businesses spin off a combined business of metallurgical coal and Glencore's thermal coal which is sort of contrary to what Glencore's been saying until up until last month even or the month before about you know being insistent it was going to run down its coal business coal obviously has been a big money spinner for it in the past year contrary to some expectations given what we've seen with energy prices in general over the past uh, year so so it was quite a change in terms of the coal strategy if this deal does or did or had gone ahead and also seems to be another play for a copper acquisition we've seen a few miners in the past year a few of the big players bp with uh Oz minerals for example looking to increase their exposure to copper given its its role in the energy transition now th this deal has been you know rejected by tech they do seem to have a bit of a poison pill family ownership arrangement they are going through their own demerger situation at the moment which might seem to preclude any comeback from Glencore. But I think some analysts are now thinking about Glencore having said, no, we're going to stick with our coal business and having insisted that this was a one-off deal and there's no plans to spin off coal otherwise. Some analysts are thinking, well, maybe actually getting rid of the coal business or hiving it off might be on the cards in future now. Yeah. The first thing that I thought of when I read about the proposal was PEX management or their fiduciary duty to shareholders. And I was going to go on a little bit of a rant about that. But then I thought about it and the the reason that they cite is that they, they wouldn't want uh, they wouldn't want to force tech shareholders to hold large thermal coal holdings, uh, which they said would be value destructive over time, drive away uh, future investment as well. Which is a quite a salient uh, uh, point when you think about it. it. It's got to the the stage now because of the various mandates linked to fossil fuels that it's becoming increasingly becoming a no-go area. And the management may well have been well within their rights, even though my initial reaction was uh, somewhat hostile, <laughs> hostile to the news. Well, well, this is, as you say, the, the split between Glencore's thermal coal, which is, is a no-go area for most companies, but as I say, has been a big money spinner for it over the past year, versus tech, which is uh, focused on you know steel-making coal, i.e. metallurgical coal yeah. the export of that so although ostensibly it looks perhaps to to the less well versed it looks like a, a sensible combination there is a distinction between these two types nowadays particularly with regard to 
energy transition, but also uh, sustainable investing mandates and things like that in terms of how people view these these businesses. Yeah, well, I think I think a lot of people were actually surprised about the uh, the price direction of uh, 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 brown coal over the last uh, year or so, but uh, that's down to external factors, uh, specifically uh, again Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, uh, as I say, the the copper side is interesting too. I think it would create would have created the world's third largest copper miner, so perhaps we can see more expect more activity on that front as well. Let's turn to the final M&A discussion of the day. And that one is quite close to home, for, perhaps for a lot of uh, listeners. Certainly, it's um, a sector that I know quite well, and Julian, you too. It's the wealth management space. No stranger to merger and acquisition activity over the past few years. And there's been a particularly big one yesterday on Tuesday of this week. I think it was yesterday. Maybe it was Monday. I'm losing the track with this uh, this bank holiday curtailed week. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Rathbone's buying Investex Wealth Arm or merging with it, if you will, but it seems to be keeping the Rathbones name. It's very much an acquisition, I think. Yeah. It looks yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, the story behind this is that uh, Rathbones, which is a, a venerable wealth manager of some repute with uh, lots of offices in Pleasant County towns, has bought out effectively the wealth and investment arm of Investec, which is the South African listed, UK dual listed uh, wealth manager and banker. They've essentially bought their UK, what they call the W and I business, which is wealth and investment rather than Women's Institute, for a, a consideration of something somewhere north of 830 million. So that's what the value of the deal is in an all share, all share deal. And when you look at the fine print, basically, uh, Rathbones has 70% of the company uh, investor investors somewhere around 30%. So it's a uh, uh, reflective of the relative size of the two wealth arms. Arguably, Rathbones has a much bigger presence in the kind of retail market here in the UK than Investex uh, business did. Uh, so yes, that, that, that's how it, how it's reflected. But I mean, it's it's very much indicative of what's happening in in wealth management as we as we look at it, because uh, over the last year to eighteen months, uh, several uh, you know fondly remembered names have disappeared, including um, uh, Bruin Dolphin uh, went into the Bank of Canada. Uh, essentially, uh, you can you can read it really as that it is a sector that is always primed for consolidation because it's so fragmented. So you, you know, Rathbone's sake, making this move is entirely um, uh, comprehensible. Uh, and they've also been trying to diversify the business a lot anyway. So they made a lot of unlisted acquisitions over the past uh, year as well in kind of higher end uh, pensions management, that type of thing. So this is sort of uh, an extension of their their acquisitions policy, but also give them quite a lot more more firepower when it comes to the underlying wealth management business itself, or a lot more scale, as it were. I think that's, yeah. that's bring it here. It gives them, I think, 100 billion in assets. Investec Wealth, to be fair, you know, they're not the storied Rathbone's name, but they did have a decent presence in, in, in wealth in the UK. I think they had about 40 billion in assets. So contributing a decent amount, but but certainly that 100 uh, billion size puts them puts the combined business, you know, right at the top of the, the UK wealth market. Yeah, Probably I mean, raises questions yeah. about... Uh, you know, again, the quality of service that can be provided and whether, you know, everyone's going to continue to get the the bespoke individual service that you really want from a wealth manager when you're paying all those fees, but but that will come out in the wash. Well, it will, I guess. I mean, Rathbone's structural problem was always that uh, 
it was a relatively small part of the business that generated all, all of the profit. So it was they have to kind of reorganize anyway in order to become uh, qualitatively more profitable. Um, so they, you know, basically it was their unit funds that that, that funded everything. Uh, and I think that the, this Welsh management merger probably gives them uh, a scale in the parts of the business where they want to grow, which is more like this this pensions management uh, uh, pensions management, which is is really the next big thing I think in wealth management. Given the number of defined benefit schemes that are maturing and people are retiring now, so that's uh, that's essentially where they're headed. I think. Yeah, that complexity is certainly a big part of of wealth management now but of course you can always turn to investors chronicle for uh, help with that kind of thing as well the, the the deal valuation as well struck me uh you know quite often in this space deals are a very simple basis back of the envelope uh, calculations are just price uh, as a proportion of, of assets and that what stood out in this deal was about two percent which is quite a bit lower than uh, some of the deals i think it's about a third of what rbc paid for brewing dolphin as well so you know obviously we are in a higher interest rate environment now, but potentially uh, not the most expensive acquisition. The other thing to touch on, which we do touch on in the magazine this week and we'll be looking at in more detail next week, is what implications this might have for the world of investment trusts, because wealth managers are quite big holders of investment trusts, quite a high up the shareholder basis. And there's been in recent years a question of liquidity as wealth managers have got bigger, you know, the type of trust they can hold gets bigger as well. That is only going to be exacerbated when you merge two giant wealth managers into an even bigger one. So there may be some share overhangs for certain smaller investment trusts, which are currently held by both businesses, but may ultimately prove to be too small to be held by the combined business. So we'll be discussing that in more detail next week as well. Well, that's another sector that's prime for consolidation, really, isn't it? Well, yeah, this could you know, be an example of consolidation in one area, accelerating consolidation in another. Uh, but that does bring us to the end of today's show. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. But thank you to everyone. Thank you to Julian, to Mark and to Gemma. And thank you to you for listening. We'll be back next week with another Companies and Market show. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.